Just a note, if you want to see this episode in video form, check out the Orange County Register's YouTube channel. Hey, Crime Beat listeners, it's Keith Sharon. I hope you've enjoyed the first two seasons of this podcast. I'm a working journalist for the Southern California News Group based at the Orange County Register. So far, the pandemic has prevented me from completing season three. But I do have some good news. We've produced a standalone episode that we felt you had to hear. It's called Loud in the Silence. And it's about a truly amazing woman whose life has been turned upside down and right side up by crime. In February 2020, just before COVID-19 slapped us all in the face, I heard about Janine Madera, who works in the Orange County District Attorney's Office. She's a prosecutor in the homicide unit. Today, she's handling 22 homicide cases at the same time. If that sounds like a lot, that's just the way it is at the OCDA's office. All the prosecutors have heavy loads. But there's another detail about Janine. She's deaf. The problem isn't with her ears. Her brain does not process sound. Her office employs a full-time sign language interpreter to translate for her. In 15-plus years, Janine has been the lead prosecutor at 72 trials and one convictions in 57 without hearing a word of testimony. But here's the thing. Her deafness isn't the story. In 1985, 10-year-old Janine was raped at knife point. The adults she told about the incident chose not to involve the police. They didn't want to force the young girl to endure an investigation or a potential trial. For her protection, they said. Their decision so upset the little girl that it launched her on a lifelong quest to be heard. On September 6, she turned 46 years old. She still hears the voice of the rapist in her head almost every day. You won't believe how far she went. What happened when she encountered the rapist a second time? How she overcame all the trouble in her life? And what happened to her once she became a deputy district attorney? What follows is my conversation with Janine Madera. It took place at her house, and yes, we sat more than six feet apart on August 17, 2020. Her longtime interpreter, Astrid Hagen, was in the room with us. Here we go. So I'm going to start in a place some people might consider strange, given that you're deaf. Let's start talking about music. You were a musical kid. Yeah, I sang in the church choir. I played clarinet. I loved music. And music, even though you lost your hearing, is still important to you now because you feel vibrations. So tell us about that. You know, for a long time, I thought I had lost music when I became deaf. And I realized, uh, for me, I love the, the feeling of music. I love blasting the music. In fact, you can tell my mood by what I'm blasting. So I'm a huge fan of 80s music, uh, 90s R&B. So like if I'm cruising into the parking lot playing like, you know, Baby Got Back, you know that I'm in a good mood. If I'm playing uh, something a little bit more like harder beat, 
um, or something like that, you can definitely tell that my mood is in a different place. I, I thought for a long time I had lost music forever, but my children are extremely musical. They play a lot of instruments and they sing, and that's what gave it back to me. You grew up in Diamond Bar, and your first experience with crime happened when you were about five years old. Your father was Jewish, and someone painted swastikas on your garage door. Tell us about that incident. It's one of the first memories that I remember pretty clearly. I was in kindergarten, I believe, and I remembered, you know, my mom being on the driveway and she was cleaning it off. And at the time, I, you know, I was five. I didn't understand what a swastika was. All I knew is that she was really upset about it and she was cleaning it and, you know, she didn't, she didn't want my dad to know. And, you know, I realized later she didn't want him to be hurt uh, by the, the hateful symbol that it was because at that time there weren't a lot of Jewish people in our neighborhood. So I remember it so clearly because it took me a while to figure out exactly what it all meant. And when I talked to your mom, the thing that struck me was that she believed she knew who did it, but she didn't do anything about it. You know, I talked to her about that recently, and in her mind, she thought, and this is what she shared with me, that she could turn them in and get them in trouble, or she could try to show them that we were actually good people and not deserving of that hate, and she said that's the tact that she took, and that it, if it had happened again, she would have turned them in, but it didn't happen again. And I think she believes that she was able to get through to that person, and, and, and that would be a good thing. When you were 10, on the 4th of July, you were viciously attacked while visiting a friend's house. A 20-year-old man threatened you with a knife and sexually assaulted you you still hear that rapist voice 35 years later. What does it sound like and what does he say to you? It started pretty soon after the attack and, and when I describe the voice, it's just the most evil, vile voice you can imagine and I don't even know if it really is what his voice sounded like, but that's what I remember. And it was repeating a lot of the horrible things he had said, that I was worthless, that I was ugly, that I had no value. Um, all the kind of taunts and you know derogative things that he said. And I would hear it in my head daily for a long time. And when things would get better, I'd hear him less. And when things would get tough, I would hear him more. And it went on that way for a very long time. At the time, the adults in your life, including people from your church, people in the medical profession, decided to protect you by keeping all the facts of that sexual assault silent. Tell me how you felt about that decision. I try not to judge them for it because it's so radically different from what I would do 
today, I try to remind myself that it was a different time where women and girls were dragged through the mud when they were victims of these types of crimes. They were, they were shamed, uh, they were bad-mouthed, they were not believed. A lot of them had their lives destroyed, and so I can understand the good intentions, even if, and today things aren't perfect, um, but I think they're a lot better than they used to be. We believe victims now, we give them more credibility, we protect them from those types of attacks. But I wish they would have known then how a lifetime of feeling like my voice didn't matter was actually going to hurt me and that what they thought was protecting me was really kind of the opposite. It also motivated you, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, after that happened and it, it happened about a month before my parents' divorce where I saw how I was treated within the legal system and it definitely <laughs> guided my, light, uh, my life into where I am right now. I decided in junior high that I wanted to become a DA, a district attorney, prosecute crimes. And I used to watch a show called Law and & Order and my favorite character, the one, that I, the one that I wanted to be, was Jack McCoy. Like it wasn't the woman on the show, it was Jack McCoy because he always had the best lines and he was tough and he was passionate but he was human and he didn't always win and I liked that. You know, you'd get to the end of this episode and justice wasn't served. The system wasn't fair but he was always fair and that's who I wanted to be. When the adults didn't pursue justice, in your case, what did you do? I had been through a lot. The attack, my parents' divorce, followed a few months later by a head-on car crash, and a month later, a sledding accident where I broke vertebrae in my back, and I just, you know, the idea that justice wasn't going to be served, that he was still going to be out there hurting people, I. I found out where he worked and through that found out where he was from and found out the address of his mother and his girlfriend. And I had heard rumors about him doing something with the girlfriend, don't know if they were true or not. And so I hopped on a bus and I went to his mother's house. And you were 11 years old at the time. I was 11 years old at the time. Not even five feet tall. <laughs> Likely not. I'm not much above that right now. Uh, but I, I had been kind of emboldened by all the things that had been thrown at me that I was dealing with. And I just honestly also felt like I had nothing to lose. And I walked up to the mother's door and I told her, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but she didn't deny it, and that spoke volumes. And on another day, I went to his girlfriend's house, and I did the same, and she cried. I remember she cried, and she didn't deny it either. And 
I heard later through the grapevine that she um, left him, broke up with him, and that his mother kicked him out of the house, but I have no way of knowing if that's the truth or not. Advancing the story a, a little bit forward, you were a really good student at Ganesha High, Whittier College, and Cal Berkeley Law School. Though your hearing wasn't great, you still were a hearing person at that time, but you had one particular goal in your life. What was that? I wanted to become a DA. That's where I wanted to go. And I grew up in a family where my mom would say, you can have lunch or dinner today, but we can't afford both. And so I knew my way to my dream was scholarships. And I was you know, valedictorian in my high school, which got me a full ride to college. I did really well there. I went to UC Berkeley for law school, which was not only a top 10 law school, but also the cheapest in the country. And I paid my own way. And it was my plan to become a district attorney and to make sure justice happened. When you were a college student, you were attacked again. Tell me about that attack. Yeah, um, I, had, I was living on campus at Whittier College and living in the dorms and really enjoying it. And I would walk around pretty freely. I didn't have a car. And one um, evening, I think it was around 7 or 8, I was walking through Uptown Whittier and I cut through a parking garage as a shortcut on my way back to the campus. And as I was walking through the parking garage, um, all of a sudden I was struck on the back of the head, saw stars, went down, and as I was kind of falling, I, I look up towards where it came from and I saw him there. He had um, in his hand one of those clubs, the red clubs that would go on the wheel of a car to keep it from being stolen. And, you know, he was immediately, you know, talking to me in my mind, trying to make sure I knew it was him. The yeah. same man who had raped you at 10. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I recognized him immediately. And I'm sure he knew that. And, you know, he started in with the same you know, rhetoric that he had done before, but he didn't get very far because my good Samaritan comes out of nowhere and kind of throws himself in the mix. He ends up wrestling with him and um, the man who assaulted me, you know, runs off and the, the gentleman, the good Samaritan, he told me afterwards he was an off-duty police officer. And it's, it's interesting because I don't remember much from that conversation, but he told me he didn't like the term cop. He didn't like it. And I have never, you can go back and check all my transcripts. I never used that term out of respect for him and, and all police officers. So. But at the time, you had a decision to make. On the spot, you decided not to involve the police in this attack. Yeah, yeah, that was important to me because I don't remember exactly what he said, but you know, I'm sure he was trying to get me to get help or to report it. 
And I remember saying something along the lines that I was going to uh, so that he would, you know, let me be. But no, I, I wanted to hide it. I didn't want to report it. I, I was doing really well. I was really happy there. And I, I didn't want to take the chance. I wouldn't be believed. I didn't want to be dragged through the mud. I, I just, I didn't want to lose all that I had. And I was afraid that if I pursued it, that he would be able to destroy my life. And I, I just couldn't take someone else telling me I wasn't worth it. After that incident, what happened to your hearing? It had been, you know, having issues for quite some time, but after that point, it really started decelerating. I was losing more and more, and it did take some time because I didn't lose the last of my hearing until my second year of law school. But it was that incident that, that kind of started that last decline. One amazing thing about you as a deaf person is that even though you were dealing with all those issues, you never changed your goals. Tell us about the first time you applied at the district attorney's office in Orange County. I uh, was very excited about it. And, you know, I had heard that they had three or 400 people apply and there was only a handful of spots. And I went to the first interview and they gave you a fact summary and you were supposed to give a closing argument. And you were supposed to get a half hour to review it. There was a mix up. We had only had it for a few minutes and they asked, does someone want to go back? And I put my hand in the air because I thought, I'm going to get some extra points for telling them I can think on my feet. I came to a second interview, granted a second interview, and had a really good uh, back and forth about that. After, they asked me if I wouldn't mind having a separate meeting about my accommodations based on my deafness. And HR started asking me some questions and making some comments that got me a little concerned. But the attorney in the room, the senior attorney in the room, he kind of jumped in between and it was kind of a back and forth between him and I. And it went really well. You know, how would you do this? And I would explain to him how I had done it in the Alameda DA's office or how I had done it in a mock trial. And he asked me different questions and I would answer. And his last question was asking me how I was going to handle something. And I remember looking at him and saying, I don't know. Let's find out. And uh, he must have agreed because he invited me back for a third interview. And that was with the DA, uh, Tony Rokakis himself. And it never crossed my mind that I might not be hired just because of my deafness. I mean, maybe because other people were better candidates, but I never thought it'd be my deafness. And what's really, what was really striking is that in January of 2018, DA Rakakis was having a meeting with me about my accommodations. And he says to me in, in this friendly way, you know, I tried not to hire you. I went to county council to see if I you know, couldn't hire you based on your accommodations. And basically, they told me 
that I had to hi hire you. Basically, you can't not hire her just because, you know, she needs an interpreter. And he said it in this friendly way, like, oh, you know, and look at how great it worked out. But that was really a devastating thing to hear because it had never crossed my mind that that might have been an issue. I guess it's a good thing I didn't know at the time. It didn't it's dampen as if, my optimism. It's as if the system could work against you. Yeah, the very system, like it's supposed to make sure that disabled people are on a fair playing field. And the idea that that my disability alone could take me out of the running for a job that I obviously had the ability to do was kind of just, I don't know, striking. I'm glad I didn't know earlier. <laughs> and now it's been 15 years. Yeah, I just celebrated my 16th year in the office uh, just a couple of days ago. As a young attorney, you had a preliminary hearing in the courtroom of Ju Judge James Marion. He didn't rule in your favor on a key issue, and he asked you to meet him in his chambers. What happened next? So he had ruled against me on one of the counts. And I was upset, but I was professional. I said, thank you, Your Honor. He asked me to come back. I declined. He asked again. At that point, I felt I had no choice. I was a young misdemeanor DA, not in the office very long at all. And I followed him back into his chambers. And right as I crossed the threshold of the door, he all of a sudden was on me like I literally found myself up against the wall with my back against the wall my left arm was up against the door frame my right arm was up against a bookshelf and I was wedged and he was very close and he was talking very animately uh, very animated uh, you know at me trying to convince me of his position and get him to understand my interpreter was actually behind him and I was trying to see her but but couldn't really and mostly my brain was screaming that I needed to I mean I was in an incredibly vulnerable position up against the wall and he's much bigger than I am and I tried to I kept trying to slide out on the left and he kept putting his hand on me and pushing me back up against the wall and so in essence I'm trying to get out but he's pinning me to the wall as he's animately trying to get me to, you know, understand and agree with his position. And it was like, he wasn't angry at me. There was one part at the end where he was explaining something and he had said what he was doing. And I said, that's not your job. Cause it wasn't. And he says back to me, want to bet? And it was right after that that a bailiff came around the corner. It was a distraction, and I got out of there. You described it to me that he was trying to get you to like him. He kept repeating that he wanted you to like him. He wanted me to like him. He wanted me to understand what he was doing. He didn't want me to be mad at him. He had made his ruling based on what he wanted to happen with the case down the road and not the actual facts or evidence that had occurred. And so he was trying to explain to me that 
even though he wasn't following the facts and the law, there was a good reason for it. And he wanted me to understand that good reason and like him and not be mad at him. And it was that type of thing. Unlike other incidents, other traumatic incidents in your past, this time you tried to get some justice. Tell me what you did and what happened to him. I felt professionally compelled to say what happened. So I, I took about 20 minutes to catch my breath. And then I went and I told my supervisor what had occurred. He asked that I write a memo. He asked that the interpreter who witnessed the incident write a memo. And I turned those mem memos in. And I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And my colleagues at the DA's office tried to shelter me from what they thought might be some retaliation or circling of the wagons by the judges, but none of that, none of that ever occurred. The judges, the other judges in the courthouse uh, treated me just fine. So my office made the decision and informed me that they were going to do something called a blanket paper, which is a term of art that basically means the DA was going to refuse to go to him on all cases, which they did. And as a result, he was transferred out of criminal and was a judge over at the Family Justice Center in, in one of the divisions over there. You called what happened to you a uniquely female experience. Can you expand on that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I think the easiest way to explain that is take a poll of every man you meet and ask them, have you ever had someone in a position of authority pin you to a wall? And I'm guessing the answer is going to be no. But I would imagine that if you asked the same number of women, you would have a disappointingly high number of women that would say yes, or would have similar experiences, even if they didn't go to that physical level. And so I, at the time it happened, told my superiors, but I didn't really tell anybody else. I didn't want to be a gossip. And in retrospect, I really wish I would have been more open and vocal with what had occurred. Your history with Judge Marion wasn't finished. You met him one more time. I did. I did. Uh, he was out of criminal for a period of time. And then a decision was made, uh, I, I don't know, because the powers that be never told me what went into that decision, but he was welcomed back into criminal law and placed in the tower, uh, which is a good assignment for a judge. And that's, I, the top of the, that's the top of the judge's food chain, correct? <laughs> that is the room around the courthouse, yes, that that is, the, that is the, the top place a judge can be handling the most serious of felony criminal cases. And I hadn't run into him in criminal, but I had a trial, a three co-defendant gang trial, and I was sent to him for trial. I received the notification on my phone that I had been sent there for trial. 
and I could have avoided him. There's a simple one sheet of paper, no questions asked. We call it a 170.6, it's in the penal code. And I could have signed my name on that sheet of paper and gotten another judge, but I didn't. I believed first and foremost that Judge Marion would give my client, the people, a fair trial. And there was also me. I wasn't going to run. I just wasn't. So I showed up in his courtroom, and he was a little surprised to see me. But to his credit, he was professional. He treated me well. And I actually heard later from one of his good friends that he was impressed that I had shown up in his courtroom. But I had already made his, my peace with Judge Marion years prior. What was the outcome of that trial? I got a conviction on the three defendants, or convictions on the three defendants. And after that verdict, or those verdicts, and before the sentencing, Judge Marion died. Uh, he had taken a plane ride and had that, I think, deep lung thrombosis or something, and had a heart attack and had sadly, sadly died. And so another judge actually had to come in and do the sentencing, and I ended up having Judge Marion's last jury trial. And it kind of came full circle for me. And what's interesting is after everything had happened back in 26, uh, 2006, he had actually found me in the back hallway and asked me to lunch. And it was unusual because he didn't seem to grasp the gravity of the situation. But he asked if I had gotten his apology letter. And I told him no. And he runs into his chambers and he comes back with this letter. And it was an apology letter. And I accepted it. And a short time thereafter, my father died. And I came back from my dad's funeral. And some people in court were gossiping about Judge Marion and what had happened because I wasn't being forthcoming about what had occurred. And so the rumors were kind of running rampant. And I was just done. And so I walked into his courtroom, which was empty because we weren't going there. And his clerk was sitting at her desk, and I asked if he was available. And she seemed a little surprised, but kind. And I went back, and we spoke for about two hours. I talked the first five minutes, and he talked the rest. And I accepted his apology. And I realized that the issues that led to it were his and not mine. And at that point, decided I was going to do my best to put it behind me. But I carried that apology letter in my wallet every day until the pandemic made me leave my purse at home. And so I think it's fair to say that I wasn't really over it. But I like to think I'm getting there. Let's shift gears a little bit. What was it like, how special was it for you to get promoted to homicide? Oh, that was a good day. That was a really good day. Um, when I came to the DA's office, I thought what I wanted to do was sexual assault. And I realized at some point, no, that's not a good place for me. 
and I got sent to the gang unit and I started doing a lot of you know, gang homicides in there and I realized, no, this is what I want to do. And so it's a very small unit in our office and when I got the call that that's where I was going, it kind of felt like I had arrived. Like I had, I had finally gotten where I wanted to go. I was as high as I wanted to be. You were Jack McCoy. <laughs> yes, I was. Bum bum. Right, that little that little Law and Order thing. Um, but yeah, I was exactly where I wanted to be, and it felt like that level of acceptance. I graduated from UC Berkeley Law School with honors, and I have that certificate on my wall, and it kind of feels like this conceited thing, this immodest thing on my wall. But I, I, I recognize that as the deaf kid, uh, I was always, I think, looking for that acceptance, and that's what that meant. How literally do you do your job in the courtroom? <laughs> I have some of the most talented and amazing sign language interpreters that you will ever find. They fade seamlessly into the background. They move all over the place. When I'm talking to a jury, they're positioned differently than when I'm talking to a witness. They're positioned differently than when I'm doing a closing argument. I prepare a lot because I need to know it in my head. I can't look for it when people are talking. I'll tab my binders with tabs I can feel. A friend of mine is, is blind and you know I talk to her about how I do certain things that blind people do so that I can find things without having to look down and break contact with the interpreter. But things come up and I have to look down and they keep it in their head and when I look back up, they catch me up. It's pretty amazing and they are on top of it. Have you ever missed anything? Probably no more than any other attorney. You had to fight for years to keep your interpreter employed and on the books correctly. Tell me about that fight. It was frustrating and it was frustrating from day one and you know, I, I lost a lot of sleep about it. I cried a lot about it. I stressed a lot about it. I got very angry about it. And I'm sure it is a small sliver of what my longtime amazing interpreter went through. I started keeping this log at some point, and it is now 42 pages. And, you know, at some point hearing, you're more work than our multi-million dollar building contracts, but you're doing well, so we have you know, we, we need to make this work, you know, things like that, you know, hearing that my interpreters, you know, incredibly professional, skilled uh, interpreting was referred to as the happy hands thing. It, it was just so frustrating. And it, it, it did not come from the attorneys in the office. In fact, I didn't tell my supervisors for a very long time. I didn't tell the other attorneys in, um, in the office because I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to make that issue make me stand out in a negative way. I didn't want to, I thought that maybe if they knew these things were going on, I wouldn't get a good assignment, which the attorneys in the office, they have always treated me extremely well. Your problem was with the HR department. 
I had issues with HR, issues with contracts, the administrative side. Yeah, and, and most of those people, most of those people no longer work there. One change that happened is that Todd Spitzer became the district attorney after the last election. He helped you right away, didn't he? He did. He did. Um, he had been elected in November, and we ran into one another at an awards ceremony and a holiday party in December. And he was chatting with me, and he asked, you know, kind of, I think, a generic, you know, how's it going kind of question. And I told him that my accommodations and getting the contract renewed was, and I quote, a nightmare. And the look on his face instantly changed. It was like, what's going on here? And he was very concerned about it. I explained what the issues were. And he just, you know, told me this is not going to be an issue. This is going to get resolved. This is going to be handled right. And he was, he was true to his word. I mean, after he took office, he got in there. You know, we were having issues here and there. And he just made it happen. So I was very, very pleased after all those years that it was being taken care of right. You founded a group called Dawn, District Attorney Women's Network. Tell me about Dawn. So I had been talking to different women here and there and people would say, we should start a women's group, we should start a women's group. And I got to a point in the office where I felt like, you know what, be the change, right? And so I had reached out and thought, you know, maybe it'd be a little informal group. And I, I have to hand it to my chairs. They're amazing. I, I meet with these women and go, hey, you know, and I'm thinking maybe a lunch here, maybe a meeting there. The next thing I know, I have chairs for community service, engagement. We're bringing in speakers, um, social, um, all these different things. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about career advancement. We're talking about you know, uh, providing meals for the elderly and doing beach cleanups. And right after we started, uh, I think it was a couple weeks after our kickoff, the Shasta DA's office was decimated by a fire, and we decided to put together a fundraiser. We raised $9,000 in a week, and it made us all realize the things we could do. And so just a couple of weeks ago, we delivered hand sanitizer to the court's that are open and the DA's offices and that hand sanitizer in those courts is available for anyone that needs to use it. We're all in this together. You also changed the maternity rules. One of the things that my colleagues complained about, I didn't have my children at the DA's office, but they talked about the fact that, you know, when they would go on leave and they would come back, they wouldn't get their same spot. They would kind of have been knocked down to something lesser. Um, when they were on maternity leave, they were told that they were an ineligible for promotion. And so right after, um, you know, D.A. Spitzer was elected, we asked to meet with him. And that was one of the things at the top of our list. And I'm pleased to report those are no longer issues anymore. When you have a baby, you come back to your spot if that's what you, you know, want. Thank you, Don. Yeah. Yeah. Feels good. Your career is thriving now. You've got two daughters, and you're a Girl Scout leader. Is that evil voice in your head still there? Yeah. But he doesn't have the same place. 
around five years ago, I started thinking about how I need to get this out of my head. Um, back in 2012, I had a panic attack and I realized that, and it's a long story, I won't get into it, but as part of recovering from that panic attack, I realized that what I thought was in my past, no big deal, that doesn't bother me, really, really did. I mean, when I finally told my therapist what happened to me, it was like this weight had been lifted. And so I started going, well, you know what? Let's make this better. And then five years ago, I was thinking in my head, you know what? I need to make more change. Three years ago is when the change happened. I started talking back to that voice. That voice would tell me I was ugly, I was worthless, I was whatever. It would just start you know, chipping away at me. And I would tell it to fuck off. <laughs> and I would usually use some example from my day or from something that had happened as kind of counter evidence. You know, you're ugly, you're worth it. You know, you're worthless. You know, fuck off. The dude at the gas station was flirting with me. You know, that type of thing. And in the last actual month or so, since about June or July, I now actually don't even have to argue back at it. And I don't even hear it every day anymore. It's still, and it's not a he anymore, it's an it. But it is still in there and it still sometimes tries to get at me, but it's not every day. And now I can shut it down with, with just a noise in my head. Like I don't even have to argue with it because I'm not debating it anymore. It already knows that it can fuck off. <laughs> well, and also you know it was wrong. What was wrong? All the things he was saying were wrong. Yeah, yeah, I, I found my worth around, uh, along the way and that all of the hateful, ugly, terrible things he said weren't right and that I no longer needed to prove that to myself or to anyone else. It's just fact. How have you done it? How have you been able to overcome all of the shit that's happened to you? My initial instinct is to point to all the other people who have had it so much tougher than I have. Um, you know, you watch the Filthy Rich documentary, you watch Athlete A, and you see these women of amazing strength and courage. And you think, well, my stuff wasn't so bad. But the truth is, it's not a zero-sum game. Just because someone else dealt with something that was harder than yours doesn't mean that your stuff wasn't tough, doesn't mean your stuff wasn't hard, doesn't mean you can't be proud of yourself. I think for me, there was never an option. I lost the last of my hearing, and the next morning, I went to class like I always did. Wasn't sure exactly how that was gonna work, but the idea of giving up was never a thought, was never an idea. 
And along the way, I have some of the most amazing family and friends. I had a lot of support in a lot of ways. I just didn't let them in for a long time. And I feel like the, the, the reason why I'm doing so well now, why I'm finally getting to that best version of me, is because I am letting people in. And this sharing what I have spent an entire lifetime hiding and terrified that people would find out, this is an important piece of that puzzle. I asked you once if all the things that happened to you because of men made you somehow stronger. And I really thought your answer was incredible. Do you remember what you told me? <laughs> I told you no. I told you no. I, to give men that act inappropriately, and I believe that's a, that's a small percentage, but to give them credit for when a woman is strong, accomplished, when she does things, when she changes her life for the better, is an insult. No, their behavior as bad behavior stands on its own. And I will steal a line from my very good friend and amazing interpreter Astrid. I became all the things that I became despite, not because. Imagine if those men would have helped you. Right. Imagine if every man that hurt me or acted inappropriately had actually helped me and been supportive. Now imagine that all men do that. How much more could we do? And it's interesting because I do believe that most decent men, and that is a lot of men, they can't even imagine this stuff. I think that's why Me Too and all of these different movements have taken off because the women that were silent for so long, and I, I, don't, I don't judge them, I was that woman. They're now speaking up and I think decent men, decent women, decent people, that's wrong. We need to fix that. That's outrageous. And I feel like the more we talk about these things and the more we take away the shame, we take away the stigma, I think the more we're going to be able to do together. Because think of how much greater people will be if they're supported instead of destroyed. Thanks so much for listening. I need to thank executive editor Frank Pine and senior editor Todd Harmonson. Jeff Gritchen produced this episode and did the sound editing. And a special thanks to Janine Madera for telling her story.